Hello okay. and welcome back to another episode of Talking Terror, brought to you by the Terrorism and Extremism Research Centre here at the University of East London. I'm John Morrison. Today's episode was recorded on uh, May the 4th, Star Wars Day, at approximately 2pm uh, London time. Uh, it's my great pleasure and honour to welcome onto today's pod Professor Lauren, Dors Lauren Dawson, who's a full professor in the Department of Sociology and Legal Studies and the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Waterloo. And he actually doesn't know this, but he's probably one of the people who's responsible for this podcast because it's something that he said to me uh, back at a conference, I think it was about three or four years ago. After a presentation I gave, uh, Lauren said, you really should do something on the radio. And, uh, well, I didn't quite go on the radio, but podcasting has, has, uh, has taken, taken place instead. So, uh, so, Lauren, you're to blame for all of this, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take credit because you've done so well. Oh, well, th thank you very much. Thank you. Until 2008, Lauren, most of, uh, until 2008, most of Lauren's research was in the sociology of religion, in particular, the study of new religious movements. However, and what we're going to be focusing on today, uh, since then, his focus has been primarily on terrorism, in particular the process of radicalization leading to violence. And in 2012, he co-founded the Canadian Network for Research on Terrorism, Security and Society, known by many of us as TSAS. He is the current project director uh, of this partnership, and TSAS operates with funds competitively awarded by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada, the SH. SSHRC, Public Safety Canada, Defense, Defense Research and Development Canada, and other organizations as well. Lauren regularly makes invited presentations to a wide variety of government, academic, and public groups about various aspects of terrorism, counterterrorism, and is also frequently interviewed by the media on these topics. Lauren, thanks so much uh, for joining us on today's podcast. Already pleased and honored to be here, John. So as I as I said in the introduction, you were, your background is primarily in the study of the sociology of religion and particularly in the study of new religious movements. So what made you change your research focus to looking at uh, terrorism and really radicalization leading to violence? Yeah, really, I mean, I'm an instance of I think there's a fair number of us in the field that we want to call terrorism studies a field that backed into it. I've been doing work on new religious movements, as you indicated, for a long time, and a lot of that work focuses on issues of recruitment and the extent to which the recruitment processes are sort of free and involve agency and the extent to which people are manipulated or the language at the time was coerced into joining various kinds of groups. And of course, through the 80s and 90s, there were very large public debates about this. There were about 100 legal cases in the United States involving new religious movements that were largely about how young people had been drawn into these groups and, uh, and how they'd been removed from these groups and sometimes. So I was, you know, I had a fair degree of expertise on those kinds of issues and debates. And then the other big controversial topic with new religious movements was violence because of the episodes like Jonestown, Solar Temple, Heaven's Gate, these large uh, murder-suicide uh, situations that were, you know, very baffling and controversial. And there was a handful of us around the world who were really um, carefully examining those cases and looking to see if we could find some common elements and start to theorize what was going on. In doing that, I focused in on one of the key elements that everybody felt was crucial to new religious movements in general, to recruitment, and also 
to why violence happens in some cases, and that is on charismatic forms of leadership. And so, again, part of a small group of around the world that we're trying to figure out ways of getting beyond a colloquial understanding of charisma, go back to Weber's original notions and develop a more social scientifically credible understanding of what is charismatic authority, how does it operate, blow apart some myths about it. And of course, when you do that, you discover, in fact, there's been a pretty extensive literature in about six different disciplines going back almost 100 years. So I'm working happily at all of that when along came the Canadian government and asked me to give a presentation at something called the, called the Cross-Cultural Roundtable on Security. A group of uh, people from the community who interact with Public Safety Canada and the various security agencies in Canada to advise them. And uh, they wanted me to talk about charismatic authority and violence. And one thing just led to another. I guess that talk was quite a success led to an invitation from the Canadian Security Intelligence Service to do a presentation, which led to an invitation to take a contract and write a paper for them. And before I knew it, I had all these requests from different government agencies and think tanks here in Canada to come and speak on the topic. So I just, of course, logically decided I didn't want to keep talking about terrorism without knowing something yes. about it. So I sort of as an autodidact, you know, as you can when you're a more senior scholar, I plunged in and within about a year, I think I had a pretty good grasp of the key elements and debates. All made easier because this is right at the time when everyone was deeply concerned about homegrown terrorism, radicalization, young people in Canada, the UK, Germany, US, whatever, uh, going into extremist perspectives, mainly jihadist perspective, which of course is a religious form of terrorism. So the time suited my expertise, and uh, that's how I ended up walking into all this. I, I, for the sake of your audience, I'm going to include another little element which is personal, because especially I think for young people, they need to know that there's always these little contingent elements that impact your life, so just be aware of them. Um, when we talk about terrorists, when I talk about terrorists, I always stress how contingencies, unexpected little events, have big impacts on their lives and determine whether someone becomes or doesn't become a terrorist. In my case, regrettably, at the same time while this was happening, my previous wife was dying of cancer. And so I had had to curtail the work I was doing in sociology of religion dramatically. I had to drop about 50% of my responsibilities. And that, and then the, when she died, the period of grieving put me into a sort of reassessment period. And uh, all this new glorious opportunity was opening. And my wife, generous to the end, saw that it was new and exciting for me. And she avidly encouraged me. She said, you know, do something new. Start over in your life. Start in a new area. Get back some of that fresh feeling that you have when you're a young scholar tackling new issues. So there was the personal element that caused me to say, yeah, I'll turn my back on what at that point was a really successful career in sociology of religion and I'd really arising at a sort of high stature to run the risk of going into a new area where I was a total unknown. But I, I, I wanted to do it because I did find the work exciting. That's amazing. And it's, it's, it's a brave step. It's a brave step for you and it was a brave step for her to, to push you towards that as well. It's a... But yeah, those those personal elements, those personal stories really, 
really do re resonate as well when you look across uh, the decisions and the the life-changing events that people that people people have when you were immersing yourself in this literature i ask as our listeners know i ask all our um all our interviewees to say what pieces have influenced them and the what, the first piece that you put forward for me was Martha Crenshaw's uh, Martha Crenshaw's piece the subjective reality of the terrorist ideological and psychological factors in terrorism published in 1988 what was it that you got from this um, in in those initial days of looking into terrorism studies yeah you know it's it's interesting you said it goes into another I'm going to sound long like long in the tooth here, but I mean, I'm 64, so I've been around a while. I've been teaching for 32 years. <laughs> you do pick up a few things, and one of the things I always stress to my students is just because a topic is new or hot or you're newly interested in it, don't get too fascinated by the most recent things. Recognize there's always probably a rich heritage that scholars are neglecting or forgetting. I mean, in sociology, this happens all the time. I'm a real strong exponent of going back to Durkheim and Weber and recognizing how they have so much that's brilliant to still say that's relevant today. So my natural instincts is when I went in, I recognized what were the books at the time that everyone was reading and talking about. And I, I had the good fortune of meeting John Horgan very early at, a, at that, when CSIS asked me to come and give a presentation. John was there giving a presentation, and so I had a chance to just chat with him over coffee and uh, found that really helpful and interesting. And uh, I think he, he shares this view too that, you know, there's some older work pre 9 11 that is really remarkably good and has been neglected and forgotten. So I just, Martha Crenshaw's name is so prominent, I just tracked back, and, and I'd already at that point read oh, maybe like uh, a dozen uh, new books, et cetera, about terrorism from both from a kind of popular perspective, journalistic perspective, through to good scholarly works. And uh, then I went back and looked at Martha Crenshaw. And when you encounter that essay from so long ago, 1988, it was saying everything that needed to be said in terms of fundamentals and a depth of understanding and a multifactorial approach to radicalization without necessarily using that term. And so I just, you know, I wanted to uh, stress that it's fundamental perspectives from social psychology, from older political science that are still really laying the foundation for work. And so what I really found remarkable about that piece is how prescient it was, how far advanced it already was, how, in fact, instead of reinventing the wheel, we could take many of the ideas from there and bring them forward and use them effectively. So it was more that kind of element than specific elements of her argument, although I have to say, in my later development and model of radicalization, I think in ways that probably I couldn't even, because I've incorporated into my own view of the world, I can't pick out the elements that are Martha Crenshaw anymore, but every now and then I reread something and realize that's where I got that idea from. So that's really why I find that work. I, I always recommend that. I do a summer academy. TSAS runs a summer academy. And when I'm talking about radicalization, that's always on my required reading list for students so that they sort of start, get a good solid start and foundation. Yeah, I'm completely with you on this. It's, it's a great piece. And 
you're right. Just because something was was written a while back, pre nine eleven, doesn't mean we shouldn't look at it. It actually means that we probably should be focusing on it more because sometimes in the in the midst of the aftermath of something as dramatic as nine eleven it can get lost and we need to be revisiting that revisiting the work of Martha and others from around that time and yeah others have said before as well that they they come up with ideas and then realize they've just come up with an idea that Martha had about 30 40 years ago so it's yeah, uh, yeah it's 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 a it's a really really worthwhile piece the next piece that you chose was a uh, was Viktorovitz's Quentin Viktorovitz's Rat- Radical Islam Rising Muslim Extremism in the West uh, published in 2005 by Roman and Littlefield um what was it that that uh, that really influenced you from this piece and what attracted you to this piece as well now, you know, I think that may have even been a book that John or someone else recommended to me fairly early, and I'm so glad they did, because it is one of the very first works I read. Now, I think as the, the very fact that that book gets referenced, you know, extensively shows that it's widely appreciated, but, uh, of course, I really appreciate it because it's a truly sociological work on, on multiple fronts. When uh, in the study of new religious movements, we're... It's heavily uh, invested in qualitative and sort of ethnographic approaches where you need to actually get into the movements and understand them from the inside. There's a lot of discussion about the need to sort of be uh, empathize with and understand the worldview and perspective, the definition of the situation of members of a group like, let's say, the Unification Church, because the outside world just sees them as completely deviant and strange and dangerous. And of course, as is always the case, when you get inside the group, you discover it's a completely other reality. So that's, of course, Victorowicz is one of the few people to really do a full-scale, quasi-ethnographic field research exercise uh, when he went and studied Al-Mujram, and that he spent all that time with them, attending all their events, attending their, you know, being with them at their uh, uh, tables and uh, when they're out trying to uh, canvas their material, going to the meetings, interviewing the leaders, interviewing ordinary members. So there was just that rich ethnographic data there that is is so rare to find. And, and for understandable reasons, because in most cases we're dealing with small, very covert groups, and it'd be almost impossible to do this kind of participant observation. So I like that. The second thing, of course, is new religious movements are movements. And so social movement literature is pretty pertinent. And uh, Victorowitz just does a very classic application of social movement uh, theorizing. So he spends a lot of time talking about recruitment processes. He talks about framing things and frame alignment. Spends a lot of time talking about leadership and does talk about charisma. So there's those components that just I found were sort of second nature to the way I understand things. So, um, and I, I like the fact that in that book too, he makes it clear and he's one of the first people to make it clear that we're really not dealing with some kind of exceptional or unusual people, and we're not dealing with some kind of psychological profile. We're dealing with a fairly a slice of fairly ordinary people who, through circumstance and a social psychological process, a negotiation with a group, an organization, get drawn into a worldview and they stay in the worldview because they find it satisfying. It offers something to them, right? 
hard for us to understand the satisfactions, but if you get inside the group, you start to realize there are these social and uh, uh, existential meaningful satisfactions. So that, that resonated with my knowledge of new religious movements. And do you feel that the findings from this, from Radical Islam Rising, are transferable across different uh, terrorist movements and across different terrorist groups as well? I think that's the case. Uh, now, homegrown terrorism represented a challenge because, of course, it's not a large organized group. This is where we sort of get the Sageman input, right? Where now we move into a networked situation and where you're dealing with smaller clusters of individuals who are only know of each other through a kind of looser network. That then poses some challenges, but the basic social psychological dynamic amongst members and the way in which individuals can influence each other uh, very extensively, I think that still applies, uh, but it's more challenging to apply it in a new circumstance. Ironically, again, this is one of the things I stress, is here's the parallels again with the, the context of new religious movements or religion in general, because uh, in sociology, but it really has impacted sociology of religion, we're seeing the death of community in the traditional sense, death of traditional religious communities and organizations, you know, they're declining. But people started noticing there's a wide level of kind of more amorphous spirituality operating in society on a more networked basis. So you get these concepts of networked individualism and things that are floating around in the sociology of religion. And that, again, is a parallel sort of to the bunch of guys, group of guys kind of attitude that Sageman was starting to promote at the time. Yeah, and actually, you're one of the, the piece of your own research that we're going to touch on later uh, goes in depth into, into what Sageman was talking about and actually how Sageman was dealing or potentially not dealing with uh, the role that religion had to play. But we'll get on to that in just a moment. The final piece that you chose that influenced you, well, Viktorovitz and Crenshaw would be widely cited by, uh, by uh, numerous uh, researchers as being influential on them. This piece would be one that is well-known, but isn't as well-known as the others. It's by uh, Simon uh, Coteam and Keith Hayward, Terrorist Emotives, the Existential Attractions of Terrorism. What was it about this? What did you uh, did you get from this this piece study uh, published in Studies in Conflict and Terrorism? What were the key messages? Yeah, it's it's a piece that you know it it has flaws. It's not it's not perfect, and I use it with my students, and they often pick out the flaws. I mean, because he spends a lot of time really using material that's derived from the situation of let's say people fighting in wars and things of that nature. It can be argued that the thrill of being engaged in combat, etc., doesn't really have a, a direct parallel, certainly not in the homegrown context. And it's something that you acquire after already having committed yourself to actions. But overall, what he's focusing on and providing illustrations from other parts of life, criminal activity, war context, uh, uh, war journalists, you name it, he has a wide variety of sources is that we have to recognize, and it really became obvious in all the case studies I was looking at um, and in the literature, that you know we have all these ways of figuring out the push factors and the pull factors that are leading people into extremism and into violence. But one thing that stood out for me that kind of gets neglected is that 
we're talking in most cases about people who are willing to sacrifice their entire lives. The focus, of course, gets on the fact that they're willing to sacrifice other people's lives, of course, which is repugnant, their willingness to indiscriminately kill others. But they almost always are doing this in a context where they know minimally they are risking going to jail for the rest of their lives and maximally that they're going to throw their life away. They're going to die in the cause. And, of course, when we're talking about jihadist martyrs in the context of foreign fighters, we are discovering they were very avid in their desire to seek martyrdom. And it seemed extremely sincere. So we're talking about the ultimate issues and life and death and preservation. So it always struck me as most of the explanations for radicalization fell significantly short. And every single account recognizing that somewhere in the midst of the discussion will throw in their sentences or it's usually a paragraph about these young people are seeking a deeper sense of meaning purpose belonging and that was always put in because people needed it they knew it was true but it was like a stopgap it was never explained it's just okay <laughs> what does that mean and having worked again the new religious movement with you know and, and talked to hundreds of people that had entered new religious movements of course that's how they talked right it was all about life needed to have some deeper meaning and purpose than what they had been socialized to you know growing up going to school marrying getting a car having a job as an accountant they just were saying well, that ain't it that's not enough you know i want something deeper richer i want to contribute more to the world i want to save the world and so that's Cote's uh, piece with Hayward. They're amongst the first people to try and really spell that out, to put more flesh to the bones on that idea that, that people are willing to, that meaning is as important or more important than anything else, and that people will actually die to lead a meaningful life. It sounds ironic, but of course we know throughout history that's been the case. And again, being a sociologist of religion, uh, the history of religion is littered with people that would rather die than betray their meaning, or once they've found a sense of meaning, are willing to die to serve that meaning. Uh, and I think that's a fundamental human urge. And in that regard, I go all the way back to Max Weber, the great founding figure of sociology. And in Weber's sociologies, Every theory, all sociology, all social science, always ends up going back to axioms that you can't really prove. They're just things that people start with as kind of uh, self-evident truths. And the self-evident truth for Weber, when you read them carefully, is that human beings are meaning-seeking creatures, and that meaning is all important to us, and that we're willing to incur almost any kind of sacrifice or distortion of our social systems, etc., if it provides us with a sort of a sense of secure, strong meaning. Mm -hmm. And so that so that that was the attraction there. And and I always throw it in with my students because they read a bunch of other radicalization stuff and I want them to realize it is about emotion and feeling and meaning and things that probably the terrorists themselves would be hard put to articulate. But boy do they feel it. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of um of say Kruglansky's work on the quest for significance and Michael Hogg's work about uh, uh, about uh, certainty and uncertainty uh, in relation to identity. It's uh, yeah, it it's something that often is left out when looking at these these process models and looking at trying to find a niche reflection of step by step process of why someone why and how someone would become radicalized. So yeah, definitely. 
an important point to raise and something that we need to to hold on to as well. But that's a you've named exactly the literature I always connect it with too. So yeah, no, it's 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 hugely important and all, uh, similar to yourself, a lot of that literature is based originally not on uh, in terrorism studies it's external to that as well and for the rest of the podcast we're going to be focusing on your own research though and you mentioned earlier on the work of mark sageman and uh in the first piece that you that we're going to talk about here discounting religion in the explanation of homegrown terrorism a critique you look at critically analyzing uh the work of mark sageman andrew silk and clark mccauley uh, in relation to how they use and analyze uh, the role that religion plays in, it, in an explanation of homegrown terrorism. Could you give the listeners uh, an overview of what influenced you to do a piece like this um, and what your key findings were? Yeah, that's a big issue there, John. <laughs> so I'll, uh, I'll say some things to it. I could actually go on about this for quite some time. But mainly the impetus is, again... Uh, because I had the unique capacity to come along with a few others, right? We're coming to bear on this topic with uh, a lifetime of formal experience and training in the study of religion. Then, of course, like anything else, when you're reading the literature, we're kind of keying in and attuned to that, uh, that issue, that topic. And especially as we're dealing with jihadism, we're dealing with uh, religiously uh, based or inspired forms of terrorism. And, of course, what you just start to notice is that uh, scholars in the field, and I wanted to particularly make it clear that I wasn't like marginal or inadequate scholars, but leading scholars, and I, as I make it clear, and I really want to stress this, all three of these guys, Clark, Macaulay, I've never met Andrew Silk, I've met Andrew Silk, I've met and gotten to know uh, Mark fairly well, I deeply admire their work and think it's been crucial to the field, and it's not by way of strong criticism. I actually wanted to stress, because they're such good scholars and they're bringing such interesting points of view to uh, the study of terrorism, are so helpful, so constructive, and yet they're almost kind of tone-deaf on the issue of religion, and that their treatment of religion, if you read any passage in their work about religion and you know about religion, you just find it, I hate to say it, kind of shallow and just doesn't have the same level of analysis that they're willing to give to political discourse, to political ideology, to social psychological factors, whatever there may be the thing, or to criminological evidence and its relevance. And so that got me digging into it. I mean, rather than just complaining about this, I thought, well, let's try and articulate this point of view. So I did a deep dive in and analyzed where they talk about religion. And I I would argue that their perspective is pretty typical of the field. And it grows out of a number of factors, and some of this is a bit speculative, but I think it's plausible. We're largely, of course, dealing in terrorism studies with people with training in political science, psychology, international relations. These are all fields where psychology, or sorry, where religion has been pushed to the margins, where religion is not really considered a significant variable in social life anymore. These are highly secular fields. The scholars themselves personally are very secular. And they're talking to a very secular audience of similar scholars or government officials in Western countries. And so they do so know much about religion. 
I would argue, which I can go on to, their conception of religion is systematically distorted in ways that religious studies scholars have been talking about for about 15, 20 years now. And so as a result, you get this sort of weak element. So what are the issues? The issues are they tend to use a modern Western conception of religion as being normative, as being that's what religion's about. And they don't understand the historical inadequacies of that approach. So there's a tendency to treat religion as being a private matter, something that people, that is sort of psychological and inward, and it's just in people's private lives, and also that's where it should stay. And that as a result, religion is not really about politics, it's separate from politics. And the notion which slips in here is that really politics is the dominant kind of belief system that is legitimate to be operative in any society. And uh, as a result, they come up with, and religion is very individual, and it's about a process of an individual decision to accept certain beliefs. So religion is heavily about beliefs. Well, all of that is a product of the Protestant Reformation, then the Enlightenment, and other things. And religious studies scholars have examined this in historical detail and theoretically, and there's a, there's a whole field of discussion that transfers, transform conceptions within sociology of religion and religious studies more broadly. So that we appreciate now that really, for most of the history of humankind, of course, first let's start with one proposition I always stress. The, throughout the vast majority of the time human beings have been on this planet and organizing themselves into societies and cultures, they've done so on religious principles. It's only very recently, tiny little slice of recent history in one little part of the world, that en masse you've had the idea that you could organize a society on something other than religious principles. And of course, even in places like modern societies, say like the United States, it's an open question whether that's even true, right? Religion continues to be massively influential in the way the society operates. So we've got that. Secondly, religion really has always been public. Matter of fact, in the core of religion, it's almost impossible to imagine how you could effectively believe the things that religion teaches without intrinsically believing they're supposed to apply to everybody and in every circumstance, and that somehow it is inherently sort of undermining the very integrity of your religion to think that religion can just be about individual little private choices and keep it to yourself. That's not the way it works. That's in counter to the actual intrinsic character of religion and the way it's operated through most of human history. And then religion is largely not about belief. Most people, sociologists religion established this years ago, most people have a very poor, like you score them on their level of knowledge of their religion, it's very low. Mm. And yet overall multi-dimensional scores of religiosity consistently show people can be, and you score them overall, very religious, but actually have very limited knowledge of their religion. So knowledge doesn't appear to be a key element. It's about practice. It's about social relationships. It's about the way you frame and categorize reality. It's about emotional states that we talked about before. It's about ritual. And a certain base knowledge is required. But within most religions, it's for a small group of virtuosi to be concerned about doctrinal matters and theology and, and things of that nature. So none of that seemed to be reflected in the scholarship. And so when I saw 
repeatedly quotes in uh, different kinds of work from jihadists where they were asserting that religion was fundamental to everything, it was fundamental to their lives, that there was no difference between religion and politics, that in Islam it was actually even incorrect to think of separating these two things. After all, Muhammad was both a secular leader and an ultimate religious leader, etc., etc. I'm inclined to say, we need to take that more seriously. We need to take it at face value. It doesn't conform to our modern Western conception of the way things are and the way people are motivated, but that's parochial. We're the ones being parochial in terms of human history, not the jihadists. The jihadists in line with the way human beings have been for millennia and the way they are throughout the majority of the world right now, outside of Western, the influence of Western European society. This point that you raised about the findings from the sociology of religion, about the actual low levels of understanding of the overall religion, is this consistent across faiths? Or is there, are there any faiths where it would be uh, significantly higher than others? You know, that's a very good question, John, and I can't even answer it. And I would say, because all the literature I've seen has all been, and this is one of the major criticisms of the academic study of religion, and particularly sociology of religion, it is totally focused on a Western uh, audience, right? Mm. And, uh, and largely Christian as a result, a bit Judaism. And I can't even think of, though I haven't gone looking for it, I can't think of a single case where someone has tried to use a dimensions of religion approach to tackle uh, a contemporary Muslim audience, let's say, mm -hmm. especially not in a Muslim-majority country. Uh, you would have to adapt the existing tools, because part of the problem, and this is a well-known criticism too, is that the existing uh, measures of religiosity are heavily influenced by American evangelical religious heritage. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so that's a, it's something that really, it's one of these sort of, as we often find in scholarship, but look, even looked into it, my bet would be it's like a hole so big you could drive a Mack truck through it, right? That yeah. nobody's there to try and fill. And so, while you're, while this piece focused on uh, these, uh, these three, these three central figures within um, uh, terrorism studies, and as, as you say, you're not being critical you're not saying that they're bad scholars, you're just pointing at this one dimension. As a whole within terrorism studies, since you wrote this piece, have you found that there has been an improvement or has there been any change? Well, they, well this, was, I, this was published in 2017, but you've been developing these thoughts for a while. But do you feel that things are improving at all from, I know you're attending multiple conferences, you're seeing yeah. a lot of doctoral research coming through. Is it, is it improving? I think there's a little bit of shift. But I, I think these, these issues continue to be debated. And what happens is this debate gets wrapped up into some bigger ones. So if we take the one individual there that I deal with, Clark McCauley, he's just emblematic of a, a tendency within uh, terrorism studies for some scholars to just discount ideology in general, mm -hmm. to say that ideas don't really matter, that it's really all about social behavioral processes. And Sageman tends to stress this as well, especially in his latest work on misunderstanding terrorism, his last book, he goes whole hog into stressing social group dynamics as being the key to everything. 
And I find myself often with that word saying, yeah, that's all true. And I really applauded their developing and exploiting social psychology more effectively because that still needs to be done. We need to really start using social identity theory and, and conformity theory, et cetera, and, and other things much more in a much more detailed way within the field. But they always seem to feel a need to frame things in a, at least implicitly in a kind of either or context. And it strikes me as, just that totally unnecessary. It's not either or, it's both and. And so someone like um, Mohammed Havez, I would say, is a little bit more in, he said a few things, places that lead me to believe he has a somewhat greater sympathy for a view like I'd be promoting. Because as he says, and I agree with him, is that you have all of these forces at work on an individual and you have all these inculcate grievances and, and problems that are driving a person, but it's when the in ideology is introduced that you get a sort of focusing, right? It's classic frame stuff. That's why I like Victorowitz again. And it's only when you get the ideological focus that you move from sort of anger and angst and frustration or whatever to action. Right? It's the key element. So you have to have both elements. And I think if you don't also spend, we don't spend enough time talking about how ideology works, how ideas shape people's ways of understanding the world and lock them into certain commitments that then they feel they can't, you know, backtrack from. Once they sort of cross certain cognitive lines as a result of ideology, then they get locked into even more into the social group dynamics and it really starts to go to town. That's when you're really getting that second order strong radicalization that can result in violent actions and in self-sacrifice. So we need to understand the ideology more. Um, the, uh, John Leader Maynard, a young scholar at Oxford that works on ideology and mass atrocities and things of that nature. I've had lots, a couple of really good conversations with him, and I cite some of his work, and he's got new work coming out that he's sent to me. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. He, he's doing some very good stuff in trying to flesh out what are the actual mechanisms and processes by which a specific ideology influences people's behavior and action. Because... We sort of assume there's these connections, but in truth, again, in the literature, it hasn't been spelled out other than in uh, some empirical instances and in specific case studies, but it's not been theorized at a higher level. So that's really where I, I want to get at this on the material. The other side, there's another little component to this, and that is, of course, we all understand, and I run into this all the time, and you see it almost daily in press reports, etc., is everyone is worried that to even bring up religion or religiosity is to immediately, you know, fall into uh, supporting Islamophobic orientations. And, uh, of course, we have to be super sensitive of that. And I'm always trying to carefully say I'm not talking about Islam. Matter of fact, my argument is actually that whether these groups are orthodox or not, whether they're actually following Islam or not, is irrelevant. Islam's irrelevant. What's relevant is their sense of religiosity, their personal, sincere commitment to a religious worldview. And in this case, it just happens to be one that they've constructed out of elements from Islam. But it's not Islam's fault. It's the leaders, the jihadist leaders, that are cherry-picking what they want from Islam to create a new, kind of new religious movement founded, as they say, in Islam. We don't have to take their claims as authentic. That's irrelevant. 
whether they're authentic, authentic in the sense of whether they fit the original tradition or not, is not really relevant. What's relevant is whether they have built something and sincerely committed to it. Now, I appreciate that, so that we have to be careful, but we can't stop talking about religion just because we're sensitive about the public issue of Islamophobia. That's why politicians won't go this direction, right? They always want to say, oh, it's got nothing to do with Islam. Islam is a religion of peace. Well, of course, even that proposition we all know is not true. No religion is a religion of peace. Every religion aspires to be a religion of peace. Everyone actually has fallen short dramatically throughout history in all kinds of consequential ways, right? The other component, I'm sorry to be a bit long-winded, but one last component to bring in is that, of course, we have the actual religious leaders themselves desperately trying to differentiate Islam in particular, but really all religion from terrorism, uh, for obvious reasons, right? But it is self-serving, and we have to recognize that's kind of an institutional self-serving perspective, and it won't stand up to any historical scrutiny. So we can't let uh, those sensitivities stop us from realistically dealing with the issues. Yeah, no, I, th- I think the, these are hugely important points to raise. And I think that, that issue that, that you raised about just because there might be a reticence be in or, uh, or uh, a discomfort that you might feel that you're drawn into al- aligning with Islamophobia doesn't mean that this should put you off dealing with religion and engaging in critical analysis. And as you said, this isn't about Islam. This is about engaging with religiosity as a whole. Um, and with terrorism studies being, and I don't consider it a field, but an area of studies, with it being such an interdisciplinary area of studies, and people coming without that background knowledge that you have in uh, in the study of religion, what would be the key uh, messages you would put across? What would be the, the, the best advice you could, could give to someone who's, say, from a, another background but wants to be able to deal with this topic of religion, um, this issue of religiosity, um, especially at a doctoral level, what, what would be the, the advice that you would give? Well, you know, in a kind of ironic way, if the person has no background, even, I know this isn't quite what you meant, but I'll just start with this practical advice. If they just even read any of the most recent or contemporary good sociology of religion textbooks, all those textbooks are going to start with this very sort of, uh, it'll be a simplified but clear discussion of how uh, ambivalent and ambiguous uh, the whole field is to what religion is, right? So in other words, you're going to get this concept of religion is going to be rendered uh, complex and challenging and a much more critical perspective brought to bear. So in other words, your discourse about religion will automatically be elevated because you'll realize that we're talking about uh, all kinds of intriguing issues in terms of like, we don't talk about Christianity anymore, we talk about Christianities. I mean, some things like that, right? Everything has to be contextualized historically, culturally. Uh, There isn't a process of secularization anymore. There are different processes of secularization in different contexts. There are different forms of modernity, different forms of combinations of modernity and religion that produce different modes of secularity. So it gets complicated, and yet it it really will make common sense to people too when they finally read through it. So there's that. But the other message, I guess, is just to harp on what I said, is to cause uh, scholars outside the field to realize you will take a critical perspective. Someone makes a claim to you about what politics is, 
you're, you know, the hairs will go back up on, on the back of your neck and you immediately bring to bear a critical perspective. You need to recognize the same is true about religion and you need to recognize that we have deeply ingrained assumptions about religion that the scholarship on religion is now shown, as I said, it's a bit of a heavy-handed word, I'm using it here, for saying parochial, but it's accurate, right? They're a product of a very specific history and culture, and so we need to work with more nuanced notions. And the main thing I would stress is to stop thinking that religion is just personal, yeah. or religion is just private. Because I would argue that, especially when we're talking about more extreme commitments, the very marker of a more extreme commitment and why it makes everyone in the Western world uncomfortable when you meet someone who's holding a, a, what you think are very fervent uh, religious commitments is that they are they're totally blowing that distinction out of the water. They don't see any substance in it in the slightest. And then we got to recognize that they're not really odd for doing that. They're actually reverting back to what had been the norm for a very long period of time. And then we'd also get away from these notions of saying, oh, well, uh, he didn't really read his Quran. Uh, he went out drinking a couple of times. So he wasn't a real Muslim. So, of course, religion couldn't be a true motivator. Well, let's get back to the way religion was practiced throughout most human history. You went to the cathedral, you stood around, you watched some guy giving a Latin mass with his back to you, standing in the cathedral, maybe with your dog, while your dog got into a fight with the next dog next to you. You walked out halfway through the mass and completed that bargain about selling your sheep to your neighbor, then walked back in and caught the end of the mass. So if we saw that, we'd say, well, he's not very religious. But that 13th century French peasant who I just discovered, in fact, if you really, of course, watched his life, you'd see every single aspect of his life was surrounded with religious ritual, uh, superstitions, beliefs, ideas. His life was saturated with religion. He just didn't treat it in the way we think of like a stern little Protestant sitting in a pew in a uh, modern church service does. He treated it as just an amorphous, continuous, blended part of his life. No gap between the private and the public. So we're sort of, there's arguments in sociology religion that we're reverting back to that as you get internet religion, as you get amorphous, uh, all the fad about yoga. Yeah, it's just a fad. But for some people, they carry it further, turn it into a whole sort of life orientation. But it doesn't involve uh, our Western congregational senses of what that means. Yeah, yeah no, these are... It... I think we could have a, a whole podcast series on, on these issues now. It's it's fascinating and really it really does show that you have to you can't just have a, a you can't just brush it aside, push it aside and say, Oh well, give it two lines in an article. It has to be has to be uh, thought through in depth. Did you ever actually uh, get any re any re response or reaction from uh, Sageman Silk or Macaulay uh, to that article? That no, no, I don't know if they've ever read or seen it. Right, it's in that Cambridge Companion to Religion and Terrorism, and they probably would see that as like uh, I don't know. You know, they probably see it as just another handbook that rolled out. Uh, I did. I've done another piece that was published uh, just this last summer in the Newman. Uh, uh, and it's uh, it's going over the same territory but differently and it's dealing with more of the religion scholars etc but in the end I look at a piece published by Horgan and Bart Sherman mm. uh, 
you know, two people I really admire. Bart, I consider a really good friend and one of the most brilliant young scholars in terrorism, really admire his work. But I really go after their piece on rationales for terrorism for these very issues. And there I go into a nitty-gritty analysis of uh, when they're discovering, talking about the Hofstad group, they quote these guys over and over again and consistently sort of miss the religious message. It's, it's sort of astounding me. Uh, and so I did send it to Bart. I assume he might have shared it with John. Mm. John's so busy, I sort of hate to bombard him with stuff. I, and, and Bart kind of sort of did a part mea culpa and then also tried to sort of back up and explain what he was about. And uh, I, I understood that. So there they had the problem that every time something that came up that was religious, they and turned it into what they called a personal motivation for terrorism. Even though, the, the, and I'll reduce it to a simple point, the lead characters in the Hofstad group that performed violent actions or planned violent actions consistently talk about their drive to be a true Muslim mm -hmm. and the, the drive to distinguish between true Muslims and sort of fake Muslims and to punish the fake Muslims and to punish those who would dare to criticize the true Muslims. Well, that's all sociological, it's all kinds of things. It's about group, it's about psychological process, etc. But it's clearly also about religious identity. It's about being a Muslim. And it's clear in the way they conceive of being a Muslim, it's got nothing to do with this being a personal belief. It has to do with affiliating yourself with a transcendental, transhistorical, public identity and the desire to have that identity widely recognized in that regard not just as their own personal right to express their religious beliefs but to to actually affiliate with something that they think should be dominant and we don't have to accept these beliefs but if we're going to understand these guys we've got to at least understand how they, they are talking and not turn their beliefs into something that makes sense to us but in fact they would say that's not what i'm talking about at all yeah, no well it's i think i'm going to send that chapter on to, to andrew silk now i'll i'll uh and I'll, I'll let him i'll let him get in touch with you about it now it's uh i think everyone has to be uh everyone has to be open to having their their work uh, critiqued and uh it's it's healthier for this area of studies as it is for all areas of studies for a piece like that to get written uh, by someone coming from a different perspective, it was a different level of expertise to the original authors. Then we'll move oh, on to. Be, be, be sure to tell them, as I said, that in fact I greatly admire his work. So. I know, I'll, 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 I'll tell him that you hate his work, and I'll, I'll create an enemy <laughs> for you now, Lauren. <laughs> no, I'll definitely. And it, it's clear from the piece that you yeah. that you respect all of their work as well. The next piece that we're going to move on to uh, is a piece that you did by uh, your collaborator Amarnat Amarasingham, uh, talking to foreign fighters, and this actually a piece that uh, that Amar uh, picked up and talked about in in his episode as well but I would I'd love to get your perspective on this um on this article this piece of research talking to foreign fighters insights into the motivations um uh, for for his hijra uh, to Syria and Iraq what was how did both of you uh, come up with this idea, not just for the topic, but the methodology that you used and the approach yeah. that you used here? So uh, Amar, of course, is, is a you know, really dear friend and my colleague who I do a lot of work with now. But as you know, John, he was my PhD student, mm -hmm. right? He's, he's one of those cases where I'm so proud of the result. And uh, really incredibly strong. I mean, he's probably one of the strongest uh, graduate students I've ever had, and he was 
<laughs> exceptionally well published <laughs> before yeah. he even did his finished his dissertation and we had a long time trying to figure out what the hell he was going to focus on and we ended up focusing saying you know go for what you know because he's a Sri Lankan Tamil his family are Sri Lankan Tamil refugees here in Canada and this was right at the time when the uh, civil war was ending and huge protests were happening the Tamil community here surprised the hell out of Canadians by launching a week's worth of really substantial mass demonstrations in Ottawa and Toronto. So we plunged into that and he worked with that group and uh, the, he really is a remarkably good field researcher. So he accomplished about a hundred interviews in about six months and got very good data. And of course that's been published as a book since. So just at about the time that was all wrapping up, um, he was saying, you know, look, uh, I'm starting to notice on Twitter and elsewhere, I'm bumping into this uh, feed coming from guys that have gone off to Syria to fight. And so it really was just sort of stumbling across it. And then, of course, he started to network some other people who were also starting to see the social media stuff that was coming out. And I, I think it's because he just come fresh off of all this kind of major field work experience he's attuned to it, right? And in that time, actually, we'd also, we, this work we've never published yet, we sent him back to Sri Lanka and he secured 50 interviews with ex-members of the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Alam that we've still never had a chance, we're so busy, we haven't had a chance to process that. So we just thought, well, let's start collecting this stuff. Let's start making connections. Let's start just collecting the Twitter feed. We'll review it, we'll read it over. He started interact with these individuals, and then before we knew, he, we realized he had developed a good enough relationship with some of these people that they probably would be willing to talk to him. So we kind of preliminarily asked, like, would you be willing to say more, and got positive responses. So then we paused and went off and got the ethics clearance. Uh, I shouldn't say pause, because it, was, it took six months. It was a single... Uh, we had to go through two major research universities, REBs. They both said it was the most complicated and challenging ethics clearance they'd ever done. Oh. <laughs> I did this. I did it all on my own. I'm hard But once we got the clearance, then we just started moving on it and did a classic sort of convenient snowball sample. We ended up talking. Amar did most of this field work. But, I mean, he probably ended up talking with in excess of 80 individuals at some length. And only, uh, I think, I, I always forget the number, but we have, we have about 37 interviews of which about, I'd have to learn, but about 32 are like quality. And we chose the 20, sort of, that we, we chose a sample of 20. We, yeah, we chose a sample of 20 uh, because we knew we wanted to start getting the, the information out from the study. And we're locked into all this other work and we were taking too long to get around to the analysis, the coding and analysis of the interviews. So I chose 20 of the more kind of interesting and better interviews and got that first article out. And uh, we have a lot more to go back into. But I think, you know, there's a couple of things here. People need to recognize that, and I knew this from New Religious Movements, and then Amar took it on credit for me and probably had the experience from the Sri Lankan situation when he talked to the ex-Tamil Tigers. The irony is in almost all these cases, if you're kind of honest and straightforward and authentic and approach these people and ask them to talk, they really want to talk. Mm -hmm. They're very interested in getting their story out. 
if they have things they believe, then they're very much interested in using you as a conduit to get their beliefs out. And uh, in new religious movements, we did that all the time. You recognize that you have to sort of, part of your promises, uh, we used to, in that field, they talk about being a group's pet sociologist, right? Because they want you to pay attention because it legitimizes them. And then they see you as another way of getting their uh, proselytizing. Now, you're not proselytizing, but you are obviously trying to state what their beliefs are. So we kind of promoted ourselves that way with them, said, look, you know, First of all, we're not interested in any of the operational stuff. Ethics wouldn't let us do that. We're just interested in your personal story, right? And, of course, that has an appeal to these guys because they've done a big sacrifice. They've gone there. They've dedicated their life to this cause. They want to get the message out. In hindsight, looking at the data, I have realized that it is exceptional that we got those 20 people we talked about. They were all combatants all people that they may not have been engaged in combat by the time we talked to them, they may have moved on to propaganda work, but they all could prove to us that they had been involved in actual, you know, military operations. Uh, and many of them still were because they would disappear for weeks at a time and come back and tell us explicitly where they'd been and what fight they'd been involved in. So I think now I do realize that the guys who are willing to talk to us probably were uh, amongst the most dedicated, the most earnest, the most desirous of getting the message out and maybe achieving a little bit of self-glory too or something. So we probably did, it's probably not representative of all the people by any means. I think we're kind of, if we use Nessler's typology, we were definitely talking to the entrepreneurs, you know, the kind of leadership guys. Yeah, and what would, like you, you, you talked about how, how these uh, some of these guys had moved into propaganda. How were you uh, making sure that what you were receiving, what you what data you were gathering, wasn't just group propaganda, but it was actually about them as the individual, about their own individual experiences. Yeah, you can't, you know. There's no way, and we're honest about that. I think in the paper that you know, there's no way of of being certain about that. And while the distinction is important, and I'm not diminishing the distinction, in a certain other respect, uh, what we're interested in is hearing the story they want to tell us. So if the story they want to tell us has been conditioned by the group in a way that's something we want to hear too. But more, I would say, we weren't getting tropes. We, If you were able to, we can't let anyone else see the part of the problem with the ethics is we had to go through massive confidentiality guarantees and I mean if if the security services come knocking at our door we have to say no and we have to risk going to court right mm -hmm. luckily it's the identity are stripped so thoroughly that we could honestly say if they said well you know you've got information from so-and-so we could say we have no idea and we you have no way of proving we do right so um, but so they, we didn't feel we were getting tropes or standard statements. And the other thing is we were dialoguing with most of, these, most of these guys through multiple social media interactions over extended periods of time uh, under diverse circumstance. And they were also giving us a lot of personal information and just chit-chatting us about their food, their families, their children, about their experiences, about what was happening in Syria. Uh, it was, you know, uh, people would contact connect with MR 
late in the evening and just say they were bored, you know, they were back from combat and they'd had their meal and the other guys were all chatting and doing something and they were bored, so they just reached out to Amar to see if he'd want to talk. And so they'd chit-chat just about life and maybe about, you know, the American, some American politics or something. And then we would slowly insert some more of our questions, right, and get them talking about their past. So it didn't seem like context where they were, like, calling us up to promote the propaganda. It, it was more a personal kind of relationship. Undoubtedly, there's some propaganda in there, but I think even then, is it propaganda if the guy telling you it really honestly believes it? It may not actually be what happened, but it's his version of what happened to him now. And uh, in conversion literature, this stuff is dealt with all the time. And the problem is, yes, you can do some triangulation and go back to check for obvious things. Um, if a person says they were a certain place or they already belong to a certain organization at a certain time, you can try and check that. But for the most part, there's a bit of an attitude of, we're always systematically distorting our past. And in a way, we're more interested in getting what their conception of their past is than trying to be engaged in being investigative, you know, uh, researchers and get every little correct nuance. Yeah, I know that it's 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 uh, it's something that I got from from doing my own interviews as well. That oftentimes what you're looking for isn't the isn't an objective truth. It's it's an interpretation. It's their own interpretation of what went on and what not just what brought them into a group, but what is main what is keeping them within within a group as well. So, what were your core findings? What were what were the the core themes that were arising for you? Well, so we, we did find, which is, uh, you know, in, in a way could be treated as not important, but we thought it was important. So this is the single largest set of, like, primary data interviews with people actively engaged in jihadism. So it's not after the fact, and, it's, and it is just the biggest sample. Even at 20, the 20 we were on, it happens to be, regrettably, the biggest sample that's ever been published on. So a lot of what our work did was confirm what the research literature showed. So it confirmed that, you know, these guys uh, radicalized in clusters. They did it with their close friends, that the Internet played a fairly prominent role, but that it started with stuff before the Internet. And the Internet really just kind of didn't radicalize them. It just complemented and extended things and allowed them to make some contacts and connections. That they um, were... What we did notice is that a lot of them actually started with, at a very young age, becoming upset about things like the Palestinian conflict, which then threw them into their Muslim identity, which then slowly threw them into radicalization. That they found that their local, their parents, their local imams, etc., were coconuts, you know, they'd use terms like this, right? Mm. That they weren't authentic enough, so then they went looking and found like-minded friends, and then with the like-minded friends, found online people like Alaki that they found incredibly inspirational. Almost all of them cited Alaki and the influence of Alaki's lectures and how authentic he was. They, but they also said things like, you know, they started to read the code. This is stuff that we don't get elsewhere. Many of them talked about specific frustrations and worries when they were a kid, and they'd go back to their room and read the Quran. Okay. And 
for answers. That's sort of like this classic adolescent religious behavior you encounter with Christians who convert to evangelical groups and things of that nature. So then they, they, were, they had some elders or friends who always helped them in the process of actually getting to Syria. So, that, so a lot of the story just confirmed what the literature had been saying. The new elements were, of course, what we ended up stressing was this business about religion and the, that we felt repeatedly uh, none of them mentioned or talked about social economic factors. None of them, most of them said they actually came for pretty comfortable and in some cases they gave us specific discussions of luxurious backgrounds, having cars, going with their buddies on vacations to sun resorts and things of that nature. So they all were well-educated. It was shown even by the fact that some of our interviewees were from Africa and the Middle East, and yet their English was remarkably good, and they often had gone away to England and elsewhere to, be, to, to school. So if we're talking about our African individuals, well, there's reason to assume they're coming from a pretty high-class background within those countries to be able to afford these things. So... That sort of social economic deprivation thing did not seem to apply to most of our sample. Some people just never talked about that stuff, so we have to say we don't really know, but it certainly never emerged. One single individual specifically argued that discrimination he had experienced drove him to this. And the irony is he's a convert. So it wasn't racial discrimination, it was discrimination over the fact that he'd become a Muslim and then his community rejected him, right? Mm -hmm. So um, that didn't seem to be a key factor. So they kept talking about these sort of adolescent struggles and anger at the world and feeling guilt and worrying they were going to burn in hellfire. So they wouldn't tell us what they were feeling guilty about, per se, but I, you can go to some other biographies, like even Mubin Sheikhs, and see, yeah, you know, it's probably about girls and sexual desires and drugs and money and partying and all kinds of stuff, right? That as they're good young men socialized to good values, nominally at least to Islam, they struggle in adolescence, they feel guilt over these things, they flip back and forth, and finally, through the Quran and through friends, found a way of resolving all this. So they did, on their own, seem to always highlight a kind of moment of religious consolidation, a moment of conversion, a peak experience, a moment when they realized it was time to get rid of all that stuff that was from Western society and was confusing them, and consolidate this kind of uh, Salafist Muslim identity and move forward from there. And usually they were already into radical ideas because they were angry about... Again, uh, we can't claim all, but there were at least three that very specifically talked about the Palestinian situation and their anger over it. Okay. And not all of these interviewees were uh, part of the one group or one movement. And so how did they view um, the, the competing organizations and the com competing movements? So, for example, how did the people who weren't in ISIS view... Um, ISIS in relation to their in relation to their violence, their theology, um, etc. Yeah, that really came out quite a bit. Uh, probably more than I wanted, but Amar was fascinated with this material, so he did kind of encourage them to, to talk about it. 
ironically, if you take our 20 sample of 20, and going by memory, but they're actually majority non-ISIS. I think there's like seven that are ISIS, and the rest are mainly Jabada and Nusra or other smaller jihadist groups, but mainly Jabhat al-Nusra, as of course the Al-Qaeda affiliate was called at the time. But uh, most of them had actually been in ISIS. They had actually left from other groups, gone to ISIS after the declaration of the caliphate, then became upset with ISIS and defected from ISIS back to Jabhat al-Nusra. So they had very, the majority of them actually had fairly negative views of ISIS, and two points predominated. Fitna, which you talked about, they felt that ISIS was more interested in fighting fellow Muslims than fighting Assad, and that really disturbed them. And then they felt that the way in which... Um, ISIS was practically imposing Sharia law was, you know, unfit, was, was problematic. They, they did feel that, that unjust punishments were being imposed, there was a certain degree of corruption, uh, but mainly it was acts of violence against what they saw as, as relatively innocent fellow Muslims, all justified by the imposition of Sharia. So they just said, that's not Sharia as I understand it. And they didn't pretend to be of deep theological, it was more a gut reaction. And then they really disliked this fact that when they were with ISIS, because it was in the early stages, when there was full warfare between ISIS and Jabhat al-Nusra and the Syrian Free Army, etc., that they just felt they, were, they didn't do it. They did it to create the caliphate and to defeat Assad, not to spend their time attacking fellow jihadists. No, it's... It's, it's a really, really worthwhile piece. And there's so many, every time you read it, there you get a, a something different from it as well. It's, uh, it, it's That's some... we, we need to go back, like this whole business about fitna, we probably could do an entire article just on their discussions of that issue. So Yeah, no, then, yeah, you could get, a, you could get uh, a lot more from that, I'm sure. It's a really valuable data and it gives us, as you say, not just that it's, uh, it's a worthwhile sample, it's a worthwhile sample who were active at the time as well. It's, uh, I think that's hugely important when, when discussing this piece. The final one that we're going to talk about today is uh, a piece that you did for the International Centre for Counterterrorism, ICCT in The Hague. It's the ske a sketch of a social eco e ecology model for explaining homegrown terrorist radicalization. Um, what was this about? Yeah, this is, I mean, everything it is really sort of personal uh, in the sense that I am actually a theorist. You know, I'm a theorist with, with training in qualitative sort of research and have done handfuls of qualitative research throughout my career. But really my natural proclivity and orientation is I'm always trying to bring things back to a theoretical level. Uh, I'm a sort of practical theorist. When I was young, I used to do all this kind of high-level meta-theory. Uh, once it became a academic teaching, I started to turn much more towards just developing ways of understanding and explaining things to people. So a kind of middle-range theory where you're trying to take a great pile of data, put, as Weber would say, analytic order to it, and move it into a kind of early stage of theoretical development that would assist people, other people, to get on with the job in various ways. So kind of like building tools. So I've done quite a bit of work about new religious movements and the larger social context in which they're developing. And again, there was the parallels here. 
it seemed that what was happening with young people, especially men in the West becoming jihadists, shared similarities with what had happened a generation or so earlier with young, fairly intelligent people joining various new religious movements. And it's a combination of these sort of large social structural factors right down to very personal psychological factors. So you've got large structural availability factors, as they talk about in uh, social movements, macro structures, down to micro. And the literature, you know, everyone tends to quite naturally pick one level and work at one level. So this was a kind of ambitious grand attempt to cross these levels. And... Uh, was guided, as I say, by things I'd already read and knew. So, of course, this got, starts with late modernity, you know, the structural factors of late modernity, moves into specific things because in the jihadist context, the vast majority are from Muslim immigrant backgrounds, certainly here in North America and in the UK. And so there seemed to be enough evidence to say we've got to talk something about the experience of being in an immigrant family and a Muslim immigrant family and the literature about that's pertinent. Then stress something that early on the literature didn't seem to be getting enough attention. I'm pleased to see now with some recent publications it's starting to become a focus on its own and that is they're young people. You know, a lot of this is really heavily influenced by the fact these are very young people and they suffer from all the kinds of limitations of young people. Poor understanding of the world, the geopolitics, strong emotional drives, heavily influenced by peers, all that kind of stuff. So youth rebellion, there's a whole pile of literature there we need to bring to bear more systematically. Then, of course, ideology. And I see this as kind of a sequence where we're going from really wide factors to ever more specific factors accounting for radicalization. Ideology, as I've indicated, is, I think is crucial to really turning the corner from just being a pissed off angry young guy or something to being someone who has a sense of purpose and dedication to something. So yes, we need to understand ideology and how it operates. Our religious ideology, as also indicated, has additional factors as people like Mark Juergensmeyer long ago have developed well. That sort of escalates the whole thing, right? I mean, there's a whole accelerator factor that comes into play when religion's involved. But then it is about small group dynamics. Ultimately, it happens with a group of guys, the bunch of guys, you know, that uh, Sageman talks about. It's about small groups of individuals really getting into tight in-group dynamics. Of course, this is exactly what happens in new religious movements, too, so the pattern is very similar. And then ultimately, you, you move towards action. But we still have a gap at the end, because you go through all this modeling, you still have an explanatory gap at the end, because it's still, at that point, only a small number of these individuals, as Horgan stresses, that will actually like do something. You know, I, I always love to use the example, Horgan's example from his uh, book, I think, Walking Away, where he has, uh, and you would know this, John, the young IRA uh, sort of hero, heroic figure who, when he was 19, walked into the pub in Northern Ireland and put the pistol up against the head against the, uh, the uh, Ulster Constabulary officer who they thought was responsible for torturing IRA prisoners and shot him, put the gun on the counter of the bar and walked out, right? And he became a huge hero because he undertook that action. Uh, I can't remember. I think that may have been the only violent action he ever undertook, right? Mm -hmm. But it's because even in the IRA, it was recognized, wow, that's exceptional to really be able to pull that off, yeah. to do, to have the guts to do that. 
So there's still more that needs to be explained. But I go through this all the time, and I've, I've presented this more times than I could possibly choose to remember, but always developing it with new nuances. The running theme throughout is I'm trying to say, look, remarkably ordinary people, as all the data shows, doing something truly extraordinary, it's a process that leads to it. So it's a process of transformation, but they're not turned into a monster. They're just turned into a person who's gone into another worldview that's quite alternate to ours and that is utterly convincing to them and supersedes ours, right? And so we want to humanize this because I really want to sort of lay out that all the variables involved aren't unusual. They're all stuff that's happening all around us. It's just that in particular individuals, they all get dovetailed together in a certain way and culminate in a certain development. And I started by talking about contingency. There's always contingent elements. I keep seeing it in case study after case study, simple things like, uh, you know, just at the time when someone's starting to really get upset about the way Muslims are being treated in the world and starting to read a bit of Salafist literature, they go to Friday prayer. They, their parents are bugging them. All oh, come, you got to come to Friday prayers. Uh, they, okay, they give in to their parents. They go to Friday prayers, and that day they have a guest speaker at the mosque who's a veteran from the Afghan War. Yeah, right? and that just galvanizes them. Where if they just said to their parents, "No, I'm too tired. Uh, you know, I was playing hockey last night. I'm not going." They would have missed that opportunity, and then realistically, they may never actually radicalize. Yeah, and it's it, it, one of the central things that you say in this is that we have to be honest about our own lives as well in order to understand this. And it, it goes back to that opening question that I ask all of our interview, my interviewees. How did you get involved in this? And a lot of people talk about luck, about chance, about knowing, meeting the right person at the right time. It's not about this ingrained belief that I have to study this, this uh, I have to study terrorism or I have to to be engaged in this it's and it's the same go back to max taylor's interview and he said this is this is exactly what he's talking about is we have to understand the normality we have to understand the pro the the winding road that our that our lives take and can lead us to these uh, to these different decisions that can seem like dramatic decisions when you're just looking at them as as a one as one event but if you look at it through the whole process of our lives yeah it's uh we it's it's sometimes the the normality of it all that that needs to be understood a lot more i like uh there's a good terrorism example it sounds like it may not quite fit but i think it does when you read the biography it does there's this anonymous uh biography of a member of the red brigades and he talks about really the crucial moment of how he ended up going underground and becoming a terrorist is because he'd been in all these student protests a friend of his father had like an old military pistol, you know, from the Second World War. And somehow he got a hold of it and he put it in his pocket to go to this protest. And he doesn't even, he says, I don't know why I did that. I just did. And then, of course, the conflicts with the police got quite, you know, uh, high scale. You know, they're really getting quite rough with each other. But he said not out of the ordinary, but, you know, the police are hitting them with fire hoses and hitting guys over the head. And there's conflict going on. And he just impulsively pulled the pistol out of his pocket, pointed at the police, and he said, it probably was just trying to threaten them at the time. Yeah. And they said, before he knew it, the gun had gone off, you know, a couple of times. He didn't actually hit any cops, but 
that was the and he said that was it he ran away from the group he threw the gun away but he said at that time he realized well that's it you know i'm now in the underground i'm now going to be a terrorist yeah. and so he can't even in that barbie he can't really explain why that happened and if that he hadn't had the gun the friend hadn't had the gun you know all those kinds of things none of that would happen yeah no it's a yeah it, it's something that uh yeah it, 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 I'd love to get my hands on that biography. I'm, yeah, I must get you to send it on to me. I can give you the reference. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that'd be great. That'd be great. So we've mentioned him a number of times throughout this podcast, but it's the way that I finish off each episode. Um, you know well the the famous article by Mark Sageman saying that there's a stagnation in terrorism research. Uh, as someone who's who's come to terrorism research from the sociology of religion. How do you view the overall health of, of this area of, of research? Do you feel that there is a stagnation here? I don't think there's a stagnation. I do understand what Mark was saying, and I, I kind of am glad he made that you know, sharp call. And when you read all of the responses, I think all of the responses are remarkably good, and they do a very good job of pointing out where there's been you know, really significant progress. Uh, I, the catch is, of course, and this is I sympathize with this, the study of new religious movements was a new field and came out of larger sociology of religion, was seen as kind of marginal, involved a lot of people who initially were just going into it, wetting their foot kind of thing, you know, did an article or happened to bump into some people, so they did a little study and they published an article and then they disappeared back to studying the Catholic Church. Um, so it's very similar. I think it's just birth pangs of a new area. Where I sympathize with them is, you know, the usual thing about lack of primary data, even though it's enormously hard to get primary data, I do think we need to sort of somehow collectively figure out ways of being more ingenious about this and, and helping people to do it. The second thing is I the field does suffer from... Uh, maybe because you have so many people coming from so many different backgrounds, there's a failure to really kind of integrate and coordinate knowledge enough, and there's a failure to adequately exploit existing knowledge. Now, that's why I do like Clark McCauley's book, Friction. I think the title is horrible. I've had all kinds of thoughts with Clark about that. But uh, I love the book because, of course, at the time I was doing it in building the social ecology model, that all you need to do is take fundamental principles of social psychology and they have obvious application and he does a very good first crack at showing its relevance regrettably not very many people have picked up on that any of those theories from cognitive distance to social identity theory social identity theory is getting more traction now but it's been taking years we should be trying to put these well-established theories together with the data even things like Bandura's social uh, moral disengagement. Mm. Everyone's aware of it. It's footnoted like crazy, but no one has systematically applied it. And then, you know, we're all put to shame. I had an undergraduate student in an honors seminar this year apply Bandura to um, uh, just Mark Jurgensmeyer's book on religious uh, terrorism and showed how there was this really great synergy going on between religious modes of terrorism and processes of moral disengagement and just showed how specific people that Sageman was quoting in his book were in fact actually displaying the mechanisms of moral disengagement. Well, shame on us. We should have done that. It's 
somebody should have noticed that and put those two things together a long time ago, right? So we're still, as I say, going through birth pains. I think we need to collectively get our act together a bit better, exploit uh, existing bodies of knowledge better, get more primary data. You're a good instance, John, of somebody collecting primary data and trying to put it into better context. We, we, need, we need more of that. Uh, I suppose this may be a product of the kind of things I like to do are, are a little bit, they take longer to develop. And of course, this is where Mark may have another good point, is where we're too stuck on the pursuit of the most recent sort of grant money pouring out of the government to solve what they think is the next immediate problem, so to speak, right? Mm. Yeah, it's yeah. It, where where do you where 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 do you think we should go from here, though? Like, we're obviously, with all that that there in mind, if we're not to be chasing what the the mo what the government are saying they want, where do you feel there are holes uh, topic-wise? Not necessarily methodologically, but uh, what kind of topics need to be looked at more that aren't being looked at? You've mentioned moral disengagement. Is there anything else? Yeah, I, that's, that's a tough question. I guess because I'm so focused, right? I'm trying to focus in myself right now. I, I've been spent so much time reading everything I lay my hands on, and probably like you, I have all these stacks of folders around my desk right now. It's like piles of paper, right? So I have all these stacks of paper around me, you know, hundreds I've read and hundreds I aspire to read. And I, and I realize I've got to stop trying to be, you know, cover all the bases. It just can't. And even just focusing on radicalization is turning out to be problematic because the literature is becoming so voluminous. So I've been focusing really in on this, look, what can I really offer that's unique? And that's religion and terrorism. And so Cambridge University Press asked me to do a book proposal specifically on religion and terrorism. I'm heading into a sabbatical. I've got a couple of existing projects, but I want to start working on that book. So I'm not sure other than, as I say, I try and encourage students to try and figure out a way to get data in, do... Uh, to really start to deeply explore the analogs and parallels. So I have a PhD student that is about to start work on the whole youth gang terrorism parallel okay. and really explore that in depth. Really go into the youth crime literature and show how it's relevant to understanding at youth radicalization. I have another uh, graduate student whose ex-service and so we're going to utilize that insider knowledge and look at this issue that Alex Schmidt has brought up, and that is analysts, the plight of analysts and frontline people. How much knowledge do they actually have? How much knowledge can they actually absorb? What are their frustrations? The fact that they're having to sort of get on with the job and they really don't have the time to be properly educated or have a proper understanding of what's going on. So we're going to try and do an in-depth analysis of sort of the plight of the analyst, the plight of the frontline officer who has to act on limited knowledge and how they feel about that and how they handle that situation and how they would like to see maybe their, their opportunities for education to be improved. So that's not really answering your question, uh, John. That I'm, sounds fascinating, though. That, they, they sound like really worthwhile areas and worthwhile projects and, uh, and something... Uh, like especially that last one it's something that that is different to uh to what's been done before in this area and uh, a long way at last there's a lot there's a long road to travel um we've got we've got uh, a lot of topics that are completely untouched at the moment so so yeah there's 
I think that's a that's a perfect way to finish uh, today's podcast. Lauren, I'd like to thank you so much for um, for being a guest on today's podcast and for telling me all those years to go uh, go to uh, to try something on radio or on podcasts or something. So uh, so thank you, thank you, and uh, apologies from the listeners for uh, for to the listeners for heeding your advice now as well. Uh, I was really pleased to be on, John, and I mean, you've just got such a great voice, good manner, you're such an excellent public presenter, those are part of the reasons I said it, and then my dad was in broadcasting his whole life, right, he ran radio stations, so I guess I'm conditioned to listen for a good voice. Oh, well, thanks, well, you know I'm going to edit that bit out now as well, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- but thank you so much and for all the listeners be sure to um be sure to listen into next week's episode london but also go into the description of today's um of today's podcast there are the references to all the pieces that we talked about with with lauren today and go in depth read them in depth uh, the icct report is is open access i think is the studies in conflict and terror the talking to foreign fighters is that an open access piece as well uh, i think it might be I think it is, but they're they're easily to easy to find and well worth reading as well as the one the pieces that have influenced lauren as well so lauren thank you again and uh, we'll talk to you all next week thanks